Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 7th, we are studying Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. As Jesus continues his journey, he teaches concerning the narrow door to salvation before reiterating his determination to go to Jerusalem, the place of his upcoming death and resurrection. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. As we get started, Pastor Adams, tell us a little bit about Luke, his gospel, and the context leading up to chapter 13. Yeah, Luke is a an interesting gospel. Um, it's it's kind of fun to look at the different accounts that we have of Jesus and his ministry. And um, each one, we can say, points to his death and his resurrection as not only the, the climax of, of the narrative um, for each gospel, but the climax of history itself and the reconciliation of all creation with, with its creator. Uh, but when it comes to Luke, there's certainly some things that we can say that are unique. Um, first of all, Luke is um, an interesting character. He's only mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Um, we have him mentioned in Philemon, along with another um, several co-workers of Paul. Um, he's mentioned in Colossians, which is where we find out that he's a physician. And then in 2 Timothy, we find out that uh, Luke also traveled along with Paul on occasion. And so he's a, a co-worker of Paul's, a physician. Um, we're pretty sure that he's a Gentile and um not only is he a co-worker of Paul's, but he also has traveled with him, and we kind of get that sense in, in Acts as well. Um, another thing that's that's pretty unique to Luke is um, that he is very intentional um, and explicitly so about how he's compiled this narrative of things that have been accomplished. Um, he's writing for Theophilus, and there's been a lot of conversation about who this Theophilus is, if he's a, an individual um, who commissioned this writing, if he kind of stands for Christians in general. Um, but regardless, uh, Luke very explicitly says, I I went about my work to write an orderly account um, of what took place uh, when Jesus was among us. And uh, he has he has a purpose for it as well. Um, he says in the, the very beginning uh, that he wants to give certainty about uh, what we have heard and what we have learned about this Jesus. And then, of course, uh, it's helpful to to view the Gospel of Luke in its greater context as the first part um, of a two-volume work, uh, with Acts being the second part. So the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus, his, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And then the book of Acts continues that story um, of Christ and, and his church. So it's helpful to read Luke's Gospel in the context of this larger story and to find the connections between Luke and Acts. And, and we'll see some of those today as we go through our text. In terms of where we are in Luke's gospel, where does chapter 13 fall within that narrative? Yeah, chapter 13 is really right right in the middle of a, a pretty 
important section in Luke's gospel. You know, it begins uh, for the most part after the birth of Christ and all of that begins up in Galilee and Jesus is going about his ministry there. And then in chapter nine, verse 51, uh, Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so that begins um, a section that's often called the travel section in Luke's gospel that goes from 951 to uh, all the way to 19 verse 27 as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And so our text for today um, is kind of right in the middle of that whole travel section. And we find, um, as far as we can tell, at least that Jesus is in the the area of Perea, um, the region that's east of the Jordan River. Um, It's never actually called that in in the New Testament, but uh, we know that from other historical documents. The New Testament usually describes it as uh, simply the region beyond the Jordan. And uh, in the Old Testament, um, it's known as Gilead. In fact, our church here is doing a a Bible through the year reading plan together. And we just read about Gilead and how Reuben and Gad wanted to wanted to hang out over there instead of going into the land. Um, And so this is kind of the setting of where what we're going to read about today takes place. And then um, it also comes on the heels of Jesus sending out the 72. And we'll talk about how he kind of sends them out to pave the way for what he's going to be talking about and doing today. Uh, But in this big travel section, there's uh, just a lot of of teaching of Jesus. Um, Some of the the key elements of Luke's gospel are found in this section. The Good Samaritan, uh, the Lord's Prayer, um, admonitions to be ready for the return of Christ, and and a lot more. And uh, that includes what we'll talk about today. All right, so we're in the middle of that travel section. It strikes me, and I don't know if there's something to this, but you you reminded me that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and this travel narrative does function really, I mean, it, it plays a very prominent role here in the middle of Luke's gospel. kind of wonder if, if there's a relation there that Luke, having been a traveling companion, he saw the, you know, he, he literally saw the traveling nature of Christianity, and that's why he chose to structure the gospel that way. I don't, I don't know if there's something to that, I, but it, it I appreciate that reminder. Made me think. So Luke 13, verse 22, we see Jesus traveling yet again. The text reads, He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. That takes us through verse 30 of the text. We'll pause there. So Pastor Adams, set the context for us again. Jesus is journeying, but he's he's stopping along the way, it seems. How, how does Luke set the context in that first verse? It's Yeah, it's really interesting because when we think of you know, the travel of Jesus. Uh, so often we think of, you know, the events that take place in particular places. And sometimes we might think of the travel as kind of a necessary um, part of that. But Jesus is always very intentional mm-hmm. about when he travels. 
Um, most of the time when Jews would travel from Galilee to Judea or vice versa, uh, they would go the route that we see Jesus going in, in this text. Um, but in other cases, we see that Jesus goes straight through Samaria. Um, and you think of his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and, and some of those sorts of things. Uh, but here on this journey, he's going the kind of the traditional route, if you will. And he's doing so very intentionally. Um, he's not trying to get to Jerusalem as fast as he can. But his destination is clear. But along the way, um, he's teaching and, and preaching in each of the towns and villages that he arrives at. And uh, that really is consistent with Luke's, like you said earlier, um, Luke's mind toward traveling. Um, in chapter four, Jesus had said to the people of Capernaum when he kind of was first starting his ministry and he healed um, Peter's mother-in-law and people were starting to take notice of him. They wanted him to stay with them. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so in Jesus stopping in these towns and villages along the way, he's fulfilling his purpose uh, to preach the good news, uh, to teach in the towns and villages that, that others might consider fairly insignificant or just stops along the way. Um, and as I had mentioned earlier, um, back in chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 72. And Luke says there in the, the first verse of that chapter, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And so Jesus is sending them forward um, in advance of him <laughs> to prepare the way, um, which is kind of an interesting picture maybe to apply to ourselves as we await Christ's second coming. Uh, but in this first coming of Christ, his destination is very clear. And um, Luke is at pains throughout this entire travel section from beginning to end, um, that Jerusalem is his destination. Um, it is the, the city of destiny. Uh, Jesus's purpose in all of this is to arrive in Jerusalem to die. And uh, that becomes clear in our text as, as we go along as well. Um, again, that's how this travel narrative began. Um, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, we hear that reminder yet again. That's where he's headed. Now, on the way, as he stopped in one of these towns or villages, someone, it doesn't identify who this someone is or even a party that this someone belongs to, but someone asks the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So is is this question coming from some place? Is there a... Is there an answer that this man, the someone is expecting? What what do we make of this question that Jesus has asked? Yeah, that's a good question. In the context, it doesn't seem to arise out of any particular event that's taken place here. Um, but if you think about the, the larger scope of Jesus teaching, it, it becomes pretty clear why someone might wonder this. Um, the Jews of Jesus's day, um, not all of them agreed on everything about this, but for the most part, the general consensus was when all is said and done, um, all of Israel is going to be saved. Now, I think just about everyone felt there were some exceptions to that, those who were exceptionally wicked or rebellious against God or something like that. But for the most part, all Jews were expected to be saved. Um, you had your groups like the Essenes who felt that that they alone were going to be saved because they alone were the, the true Jews, if you will. But again, for the most part, it was a, a pretty broad understanding that Israel is saved and, and the rest of the world is not. Uh, but Jesus starts saying all these things that kind of throw that into question. Um, one example would be a few chapters before our reading in Luke. Uh, Jesus said in chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so Jesus in his teachings makes it very clear that to be his disciple is is no easy task. Um, it's, it's difficult. It's demanding. And so Jesus has all these followers, these large crowds that follow him from place to place. But uh, this person seems to be wondering, is this, uh, is this the group that's going to be saved? Or even is this entire group going to be saved? Because among Jesus's followers, we see time and again that, that some are merely curious. Uh, some follow him very ardently until he says something that doesn't really jive with their understanding and then they leave. So, so how many are going to be saved, Jesus? It, it sure seems like there won't be as many as we've all thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've seen Jesus in the gospel of Luke draw dividing lines. He even said that he came to accomplish division, not, not peace, that when he comes, there will be division. And so there, this question, it does seem, you know, it's not totally out of the, out of line from what Jesus has been doing. And the, the answer that seems to be, I mean, the dividing line that you're seeing in Luke's gospel is Jesus himself. It's not any of these other dividing lines, but it's what do you think about Jesus? So we've, we've seen conflict around him. We've seen faith around him. So who's it going to be? How many? Will it be few? It could be a yes or no answer, but Jesus, as is his habit, does not just say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> what, how does Jesus, does Jesus answer? How does he answer this question? Yeah, does Jesus answer? I'm tempted to answer in a way that Jesus would. <laughs> I, I think the answer is is sort of. Um, I mean, I think what's implied in what Jesus ends up saying is is at least a tacit yes of sorts. Um, will those who are saved be few? Um, yes, you know, whoever asked this question, he's saying yes, um, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Um, you know, Jesus had indicated in, in other places that there would be few who would be saved. Um it's kind of an interesting parallel. It's it's a different context, but Jesus is saying something very similar in Matthew 7. Um, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so this was you know, a teaching of Jesus found in his Sermon on the Mount um, and one that he apparently you know repeated from time to time and, and shares also in this sense, but the way that, um, that he talks about it here, again, it's kind of similar to what he says in Matthew there. Um, he said there, enter by the narrow gate here. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And so Jesus does answer his question in a way, I think, um, by talking about this narrow door and, and the effort it takes to get through it. Um, it's not a, a wide open space that's easy for everyone to access necessarily. It's, um, it's difficult. Not many find it. Uh, but Jesus really seems to be less concerned with with uh, how many and is more concerned with the how. He kind of takes this question and turns it back on the one who asks it um, and wants to, to go from the realm of theological theory uh, to personal introspection. And so he says, strive to enter the narrow door. Um, there's a problem with that a little bit as we, we read that as Lutherans. Um, <laughs> It doesn't sound very Lutheran, um, but apparently it's very Jesus. So, so what do we do with this? Because it sounds a little bit like, you know, we strive and we work as hard as we possibly can. And if we're, if we're good enough, maybe we can just, you know, kind of squeeze through. Um, but we know that from the rest of Scripture, our strivings don't achieve salvation. Um, none of us are able or strong enough to, to enter into salvation. Um, so what's going on here? Um, you know, Jesus isn't promoting works righteousness. He's not telling us work really, really hard and you just might be good enough to make it. 
Now, what Jesus is doing here is pointing out the, the very limited time that salvation is, is on offer. Um, think of how he began his ministry. You know, the, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And uh, Jesus uses a, a very interesting word. Um, he uses the Greek word agonizeste. So it's uh, agonizomai. It means um, to, to strive. It's used in athletic contests, uh, military contexts. Um, it doesn't imply working for our salvation, but rather being very earnest as we seek it. It's the, the word from we actually, we actually get the word um, agony from this Greek word. And so uh, Luke is calling us to strive. Uh, Jesus, uh, through Luke, is calling us to strive um, for the narrow door. Um, but it, it reminds me of you know, Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, the very first one. Uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so we, we struggle um, not by our own works to get into the kingdom, um, but we, we have just a single-minded focus on the Word of God and uh, Jesus Christ and especially his cross and, and what he accomplishes for us there. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I read a commentary that pointed out uh, we don't push open the door. We don't have to find the, you know, the special key among our works or something to unlock it. Jesus is the key. It's been unlocked. The door stands open. Yeah. Um, it's it's narrow, but it is it is open for us. Yeah. And so it, it kind of reminds you of you know what Paul says about fighting the good fight of the faith. Um, you know he tells Timothy to do that in First Timothy. Then in Second Timothy, he claims to have done it himself. Yeah. Um, faith is a fight, um, but it's a fight won by Jesus. And and our struggle is to to cling to the promises of God. I think the way that you explained this as having to do, especially with the limited amount of time that's available for this open door, I think it, I mean, it fits very nicely with the rest of this context at the beginning or toward the beginning of Luke chapter 12, you have the parable of the rich fool who thinks he's got all these years to enjoy his stuff. And he finds out, no, tonight your life is demanded of you. And even in, in just the previous couple of of texts in Luke 13, you have the parable of the fig tree that yes, gets that extra year in which the, the vine dresser is going to take care of the fig tree, but that year will come to an end. And so, I mean, over and over in this section of Jesus teaching in chapters 12 and 13, the urgency of repentance has been emphasized. And I think the same thing here is you're saying with the striving to enter the urgency, less worry about the how many more about the how and the urgency to it. And it is through the narrow door. So just to make sure we're very explicit, what is this narrow door Jesus means? Yeah, the, the narrow door um, helps us to see that, that Jesus is saying um, there is one way and it's very narrow on um, this you know, theology that's so popular today of all roads lead to heaven um, is nowhere to be found in the teachings of Jesus. Um, the narrow door is Christ himself. Uh, the narrow door is placing our, our confident trust in him for our salvation. Um, Jesus points to this again and again. He, you know, he says to the Jews in, in John 5, you know, you search the scriptures because you believe that you have eternal life in them but you refuse to come to me. Um, the scriptures bear witness to me. Uh, I am the door. <laughs> I am the way to eternal life. Now, from Jesus' own words, some are going to try to get in, but they're not going to be able to get in. Jesus starts to make a, a turn here, and he talks a lot more about the not getting in at first before he will turn back toward the end about those who do. Tell us 
about what Jesus says about the many who try but can't. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you can notice it in the English and and in the Greek um, as well. You know, we have this word strive, agonizomai, and then a little bit later on in the verse, uh, many, I tell you, will seek to enter, zetain, uh, will seek to enter and will not be able. There's there's an intentional shift in how Jesus talks about these two groups of people. Um, the sense isn't that if you strive, um, you still might come up short. Um, all who strive to to trust in Christ will find their way through the door and, and into the banquet. Um, it's those who, who seek, uh, those who um, are merely kind of looking or curious, or those who you know, come to the party too late, if you will, um, that end up being left out. And so, yeah, Jesus sets up this um, kind of this dichotomy between those who have striven and, and trusted in him and those who have not. And we see that that the salvation of some is, you know, corresponds to the, the judgment of others. Mm. So he, he begins to expound upon that with a parable of sorts. He talks about a master of the house who shuts a door. So the door is still a part of it, but now the master of the house has shut it and people are outside knocking. Take us into this parable that Jesus begins to tell in verse 25. This is an interesting parable of Jesus because we're, we're so familiar with all these parables Jesus tells of a, a master of the house who goes away and you know, leaves things under the care of his servants and gives them talents or leaves and and sends, you know, emissaries and finally his own son to see that things are being done. And the, the sense is always that that the master or the father is going to return home and we better be ready. Now, Jesus puts a different spin on it in this one. Um, here we have the master of the house, who is, you know, God himself, of course, pictured as as being seated inside. It's almost as if he's there waiting. <laughs> And he's sitting now, but the time is going to come when he will will rise up and he'll rise up to shut the door. And then the, the party begins, if you will. And so many are, are going to seek to enter at that time and, and are going to find that that they're not where they expected to be. Um, and that's that's one of the chilling parts of, of this um, that we see in Jesus's other parables as well is, not everybody who expects to be saved is going to be saved. Going back to the question, you know, will those who are saved be few? Mm. Jesus's answer is, well, in a sense, yes, especially as you're thinking of it. Mm. Israel is not saved by virtue of being Israel or thinking that they're the true sons of Abraham. Um, they are saved through through faith in, in Jesus Christ. Just... Uh... Uh, thinking about that from a pastoral perspective for a moment, you, you said, you know, that's a, one of the chilling features of this text, this parable, is the thought that I think I'm in, but I'm really not, and I don't find that out until the last day. For someone who's got that concern, how how do, I mean, what's the pastoral way to address that? How do we how do we address that as pastors, as Christians, when, pastor, I, I'm not sure, am I in or out? What how do, we, how do we handle that? Yeah, I mean, I would say you point them right to the the open door, you know, the narrow door that stands open through Christ. And, and you tell them and you tell yourself too, because we pastors need to be reminded of it just as much, if not more than everyone else, uh, that that door is open and, and we are in simply because of Jesus. Mm. Now, if we start to look to ourselves, if we start to wonder, am I good enough? Um, am I strong enough? Have I done enough? Um, we always, we need to be redirected uh, to the actual way in instead of this aimless seeking. And so if someone ever asked that question, how do I, how do I know if I'm saved? I think the best question is, 
Do you trust in, in Christ Jesus for your salvation? If you do, there is no question whatsoever. There is no cause for fear or worry or concern. Uh, you're not going to be on the list of those people that are surprised on the last day. Yeah, I mean, always always a point pointing back to the gospel, the good news that it, it doesn't depend on me and, and anything that I do, but it depends on Christ, who is that narrow door. He is the only way, but that door is open, and it is open now. So, I mean, it sees that opportunity. Take, you know, don't redeem the time, as Paul might say in, in his epistles. Make use of this opportunity now to repent, to believe in the good news of Jesus. I, I think that these, this parable then provides maybe some diagnostic tools for ways to to look at our lives, to examine maybe where our we're taking these things for granted. So talk about talk a little bit about these many who are seeking to enter and they're they're standing outside, they're knocking open to us. What take us into some of the the things that we see in these many who are outside looking in on this day. Right? These these are the ones who expected to be in and so they're surprised at being locked out and then they start to plead. And we see this in in Matthew's gospel as well. Um but it's it's a little more intense there. But here they're really saying um, we we deserve to be in with you, Jesus. You know, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets, and we're familiar with you. We've we were there, you know, during your ministry. How how can we not be be part of the group? And it kind of calls to mind, you know, James chapter two, that famous verse, verse nineteen. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, mere knowledge about who Jesus is, mere familiarity with him, is not the same as, as saving faith. Uh, Luther once wrote, Even though you know that he is God's Son, that he died and rose again, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, you have not yet learned to know Christ aright, until you also believe that he did all this for your sake, in order to help you. And so, just being familiar with Jesus or familiar with the story of, of the gospel is not the same thing as, as saving faith, that trust in Jesus that looks to him for salvation, um, that throws off any expectation that any of our own strength or, or works or actions have done anything. And so, um, you know, we used the word chilling earlier. Uh, perhaps more chilling is, is what the master of the house says uh, to these people who believe that they've done enough or that they— you know they deserve somehow to be a part of of this banquet. Let's uh let's pick those words of the master of the house up on the other side of the break. The I don't know where you came from. The depart from me again. Chilling words. Well, let's pick those up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're talking Luke 13 with Pastor Caleb Adams. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 7th. We're studying Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35 with Pastor Caleb Adams. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we're talking about those who are on the outside looking in on the last day. They say to Jesus, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But that sort of mere familiarity with Jesus is not saving faith in Jesus. Then the master speaks, and again, chilling words from the master. Two two sentences in particular. I don't know where you come from, and depart from me, all you workers of evil. Why, why are those the things that the master says to these people on the last day? Yeah, this is about the worst thing that you can hear from God, is I do not know you. I do not know where you come from. Um, you know, Jesus speaks this way in, in other places. And in fact, the, the scriptures as a whole speak this way. Um, think of Psalm 1, which talks about the man who delights in, in the Torah of Yahweh, um, and then talks about the righteous and the wicked. And that psalm ends um, as it begins the whole Psalter by saying, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And it's implied there that the Lord does not know the way of the wicked. Um, we have him say these same things, Jesus, in, in the Gospel of Matthew a couple of times. Uh, to those who cry out, Lord, Lord, and, and don't make it in, if you will. Mm. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, in the sheep and the goats, you know, Jesus says the same thing. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Actually, I think that's before. I think that's from uh, the parable of the, the ten virgins. Mm. But this idea of, of not being known by God um, can you imagine a worse thing and, and think about the audience to which he's speaking, who they were children of Abraham. Um, of course, God knew, not only knew them, he knew where they came from. It came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here God is saying, I, I don't even know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. It seems to be a, a reference to Psalm 6, um, where the prayer is, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Um, workers of, of evil or, or lawlessness or unrighteousness, as you could translate the Greek here. Um, they're asking God to do something unjust, unrighteous, um, in countermanding his own, his own law. Um, but we're reminded in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And uh, that's where these, these people find themselves. Mm. Jesus describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which I think is something that's familiar to most readers of the Gospels. But what is, I mean, where does that come from? The idea of a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is that a description of of being left out of the kingdom of God? Yeah, we're, we're pretty familiar with weeping. Um, we've all experienced that. Um, seems to connote just a, a deep sorrow, almost a, a despair at being separated from God. Um, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase six times to talk about uh, God's judgment. But uh, it's only found here in, in Luke. It's not anywhere else in, in the other gospels. And so um, when we talk about gnashing of teeth, what exactly does Jesus mean? And uh, we find that, that there are several places in the Old Testament that use this phrase. And in pretty much every case, um, it indicates anger, um, hatred, animosity, mockery, uh, things like that. Uh, when Job is talking about how God has been treating him, he says that he has gnashed his teeth at me. Um, mm. He has sharpened his eyes against me. Uh, the Psalms talk about 
Uh, profane mockers gnash at me with their teeth. Um, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. So there's this sense of, of both deep sorrow and um, and anger and hatred uh, toward God. And this is where this is where they find themselves when they're they're on the outside looking in. Now, these people who are on the outside looking in, part of this weeping and gnashing of teeth is that they see who is in there. The first people Jesus lists are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. So I suppose we shouldn't be surprised to see them there. This is a good confirmation, by the way, that you know if we're talking about Jesus as the narrow door, that these Old Testament saints trusted in the promise of the coming Christ. I mean, we see that they've been brought into the kingdom in the same way that those who are there being brought in through Jesus. Talk a little bit about those, those I guess, pillars of the, the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets who are there in the kingdom. Yeah, of course. So this is, I mean, again, to the Jewish audience to which Jesus is speaking, this is exactly what you would expect. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and the prophets are there. Uh, this is who's supposed to be in the banquet. The problem is uh, we're supposed to be in there with them. And that's that's really what um, what is shocking about what Jesus has to say here. Because many Israelites, Jesus is saying, the people of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets will be left out. Mm. And instead, what Jesus says is that people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And so this this weeping, um, teeth-gnashing crowd looks in and sees not only the patriarchs, but they see people from everywhere. Mm. Um, they see the Gentiles, <laughs> the people who were not supposed to be a part of this. Um, you know, Jesus is going to tell a parable in the very next chapter of Luke where um, guests are invited to this banquet and they all make excuses uh, when the feast is ready. And so the master of the house invites all these outcasts from the city streets and the countryside and they come in and are welcome to God's table. And, and we see that sort of thing happening here. Um, it may have been surprising uh, to the hearers, but I think we could say it, it shouldn't have been um, because this is a, a pretty prominent theme throughout <laughs> the old Testament that, that God has, uh, called his people, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets, um, for the purpose of calling the whole world to be a light to the Gentiles. Um, Isaiah 25 is, you know, such a, a beautiful passage that's often used in, in our Christian funerals. Um, Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, uh, aged wine, well-refined, you know. So this has always been God's plan is that this banquet is is for all people. And so the surprise um, is that perhaps God really meant that. <laughs> and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there as as expected, but now there are all these other people and uh, and we're left out. Mm. This is uh, you know this great reversal. and so we, you know we have that phrase that Jesus uses in a few different contexts. Um, some who are last will be first, some who are first will be last. Um, and the sense here is uh, not so much, well, everybody gets in, but you just have to wait your turn. I mean, Jesus really uses it in this sense to say, everybody who who you thought was going to get in first and, and be VIPs, um, they, they might not even find their way in. Mm. Um, it's it's pretty shocking, and it's, it's a warning for us um, 
who tend to think of ourselves, um, rightly so, as the new Israel. Um, but are we relying on the fact that that we are now God's people, or are we relying on the fact that we are God's people because of what Christ Jesus has done for us? Right. I mean, I think you know this. The ending of this account here is it, it does tie us back to what we were talking about the beginning with the question that's asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And I think you said, well, sort of, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. And so if you're thinking, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like, am I among the the select few that will get in because of like my heritage or something like that? You need to take warning. But notice how by the end of, of this account, Jesus does open it up. Like, people from anywhere and everywhere are going to be in the kingdom. And so, yes, few, narrow gate, strive to enter now while it's open, but it is open to everybody. And, and in that, I mean, it's almost, you see this this tension, I think, several places in the scriptures that, that on the one hand, Christianity is entirely exclusive. It's Jesus and only Jesus, and that's it. He's the only way. And yet at the same time, it's entirely inclusive. That one and only way is for everybody. And I, I think, and that's where I think that, you know, maybe that catechetical phrase there at the end about the last being first, the first being last ties this together and really puts that tension to us and, and, and calls us to examine our own hearts for the way that we're striving to enter the kingdom or not. And, and how are we trying to get in and ultimately to put our hope only in Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, we, we talked earlier about the, the pastoral approach to those who are wondering, you know, am I going to get in? Am I, am I going to be the one surprised at the end? And I think we can, you know, point them to what Jesus says here. I mean, are those who are going to be saved few? Well, yes, on the one hand. On the other hand, verse 29, people will come from east and west, from north and south. That's you. Yeah. You have a spot at the table in the kingdom of God. Yeah, and that's fantastic news. So good good news here from Jesus in Luke 13. He continues, this good news is going to come because of what he's doing. Again, we go back to that thought of the journey. So we pick up the text again now in verse 31 of Luke 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us all the way through the end of Luke 13. So, Pastor Adams, we meet some familiar characters in the Gospel of Luke, though it's maybe been a while since we've met some of them. Tell us a little bit about, first about Herod, the one to that the Pharisees bring to Jesus' attention. Who's this Herod? Yeah, so this Herod is not to be confused with the Herod at the very beginning of Luke, who would be Herod the Great, who, who sought to kill um, Jesus, which I guess that's in the Gospel of Matthew specifically. But um, this is uh, Herod the Great's son, uh, one of his sons that is put in charge of, of Galilee and, and Perea, as we were talking about. He's a tetrarch. So think of Tetris, which comes from, you know, the four blocks and then Arcos, meaning ruler. So he's the ruler of, of one fourth of, of this kingdom. And so um, this Herod um, has been very interested in Jesus for a long time. He's the one who 
who killed John the Baptist, although uh, reluctantly. And uh, we we heard in, in chapter 9 um, that he's a little bit worried about this Jesus, but also intrigued by him. Um, he had been hearing that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, which I don't know if I ever killed someone and then found out they were back. Um, that'd be cause for concern, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so Herod says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And so Herod's been been very interested uh, this whole time. And and Herod, um, at least from some sources, it seems that Herod had more authority in Galilee uh, than the Sadducees even did in Jerusalem. Um, he's he's more of a, a ruler in his own right than the, the ruling class in Jerusalem. Um, both of them have to go through Rome, but Herod has a little bit more more authority. And so uh, it's interesting that the Pharisees come along and mm. and they warn Jesus about Herod that Herod is is trying to kill him. And uh, the question, of course, is um, is Herod really trying to kill him? And then the second question is: Are the Pharisees um, trying to help Jesus out here or not? And uh, I don't know that we know the answer to that question completely. I think um, I think the answer is maybe. Um, not all Pharisees are equal. We we tend to read Pharisee, and we automatically you know, know that that's the bad guy in the Gospels, and and for good reason. Um, but you know there are a lot of places where the Gospel writers tell us that the Pharisees said this, seeking to trap him or seeking to you know harm him or something like that. Luke doesn't give us any of that sort of evil motive. He doesn't attribute that to the Pharisees here. Um, so it's possible that there were some Pharisees that were concerned for Jesus. But it certainly seems more likely from what we know of the Pharisees. Um, they probably just wanted to get him out of their territory. Uh, Jesus tends to attract a lot of attention, say some things that the Pharisees don't really agree with. So they would probably be be pretty grateful if he moved on to Jerusalem. So Cyril of Alexandria, for instance, you know, just says, you know, the Pharisees, this was all just a pretense. They didn't, they didn't care about Jesus at all. Um, of course, the irony is that you know, this threat of death that the Pharisees, um, either from a, a good place or a bad place, are hoping will influence Jesus out of fear to leave. Um, Jesus is not going to respond in fear. Jesus is is going to die no matter what, uh, but it will not be by Herod's hand. Um, and so we'll, we'll see that, you know, coming up in Luke's gospel, of course. Right. Yeah. Jesus, he knows he's not going to die by Herod's hand, but he also knows that he is going to die. And you, you certainly see his determination to finish that course as he will, the language he will use here. So he starts by saying, go and tell that fox. He calls, he calls Herod a fox. Why, 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 why does he call Herod a fox? <laughs> There's different opinions about what Jesus means here. Um, some have said that, you know, foxes are very cunning. And so it was almost a backhanded compliment. You know, that he's a, a shrewd ruler. Um, definitely from the context, though, it, it doesn't seem that that Jesus is uh, showing a great deal of respect to Herod or, or admiration. He seems to really be using that that comparison of a fox, as as was common in the day, uh, to describe someone as, as worthless or slanderous or, or treacherous, kind of underhanded in how he does things. So. Mm. All right, so go and tell that fox. And then what's what's the message? What, what is Jesus saying both to the message that he would give to Herod and then to the Pharisees who, for one reason or another, are trying to get Jesus out of that area. What does Jesus' answer have to say to both of those things? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the sense here, he, he says, go and tell that fox. So go and tell Herod these things. But 
it really doesn't seem as if Jesus is taking this to heart that that these are actually messengers from Herod that are warning him or that they really have anything um, anything true to say. Um, so I, I think we could probably say that when Jesus responds and says, go tell Herod this, that he's really saying, let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, the message is, um, I will I will leave when, when I will leave, and I'm going to continue going about my business. I'm going to do my ministry. I'm going to cast out demons. I'm going to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day, uh, finish my course. So um, I think one of the things Jesus is saying is, Nothing is nothing is going to stop him. He's going to continue to go about his mission calmly, patiently, deliberately. Um, and he knows, you know, in case this word does get back to Herod, he knew he knows that Herod had quite a bit of interest in in these miracles he was performing. So he he notably doesn't say, "No, I'm going to keep teaching and preaching," which of course is true. Uh, but he points out these miracles. Uh, but it's interesting how he says it, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, today and tomorrow, and the third day. And, you know, we, we Christians, when we, whenever we hear the third day in any context, there's one place our mind always goes. And, and I think that's right here. Um, this is clearly Jesus saying, nothing is going to knock me off my course. Mm. And being here in the context of the travel narrative, we know what his course is. He's stopping along the way, day one, day two. He's preaching and teaching in villages, casting out demons, performing cures. Uh, but he's headed to Jerusalem. And, and so this third day does seem to be... Uh, thinly veiled reference to his upcoming resurrection. Uh, So he's going to die soon, like you said, uh, with or without Herod's help. And Herod will actually play a part in the the passion of Jesus. Uh, But Jesus is not going to be knocked off course. And and the way that he says this, um, you know, the the ESB translates it as the third day I finished my course. Um, It's it's one word in the Greek. It's uh, teleumai. Literally means I, I am perfected. Um, I am completed. Um, and so it, it definitely has the sense of, you know, I bring to completion the things that I am about. Um, but it's it's interesting that Jesus would use that word. Um, and it calls to mind, you know, some of the ways that the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus. Um, this is the only time that this, this verb is applied to Jesus in the Gospels. And in Hebrews, it's used three times uh, where they talk about Jesus being made perfect, uh, being made perfect through suffering, uh, being made perfect and becoming the source of eternal salvation, um, and Jesus being the the Son who has been made perfect forever. Uh, the the perfection, the completion of Jesus in His mission, mm. is found in the cross and in the empty tomb in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the city of Jerusalem does take center stage here, particularly as Jesus continues. And, and notice, you know, you've got that reference to the third day, the resurrection there in 32, and then also a resurrection to the cru- or a reference to the crucifixion as well in the following verse that, you know, a prophet has to perish in Jerusalem. It can't happen elsewhere. So Jesus, he's going to Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen. And then he he goes into this lament concerning Jerusalem in verse 34. Uh, what What is Jesus saying there in this lament that he speaks over the city of Jerusalem? Yeah, Jesus does this in, in a couple of different settings, and it's unclear here whether he's you know still in the region beyond the Jordan and just thinking of Jerusalem and, and his, you know, soon or his arrival that's soon to come, um, or whether maybe these words are spoken as he's drawing closer to Jerusalem. Um, But regardless, it's interesting in the Greek text, Jerusalem appears three times in a row. Uh, We don't need the O in Greek when we have the vocative. So the end of verse 33, the beginning of uh, verse 34, 
uh, Jerusalem appears three times, and Luke is very clearly, you know, pointing our our attention there. Um, and the fact that Jesus repeats Jerusalem is significant. Uh, some have said this is the Semitic way of showing intensity, uh, or that it suggests you know reproach or something like that, which is certainly a part of what Jesus has to say. Um, but a couple of other parallels, even from Luke's gospel, seem to make it clear that this is expressing the love that Jesus has. Um, you know, when he had talked to to Martha, when her and Mary weren't getting along, he said, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. Um, near near the time of his crucifixion, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, um, but I won't let him. And so uh, Martin Franzman's commentary describes, you know, this this lament that Jesus has here as a cry of injured love, um, because this city that that means city of peace, Jerusalem, um, has this monopoly on on killing prophets, and Jesus knows <laughs> what's going to to befall him, um, which is the very reason he's going there. Um, and so this this theme of lamenting the fact that that Jerusalem kills prophets and those sent to to her um, continues here, and in fact it continues into volume two of Luke's work. You know we have uh, Luke narrating the the first Christian martyr in, you know, in Stephen in Acts 7, and then the slaughter of, of James, the brother of John. Um, and so this is a, this is a, a repeated theme and it, it breaks Jesus's heart um, because his desire is to, to gather them together and uh, to show them his love. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the image that he uses there is so beautiful. He uses the image of a, a mother hen gathering her brood, all of her chicks, that's Jesus' desire. And then the just the the heartbreaking words in English translated, you would not. Jesus' desire was to show this love and compassion. That was not the desire of the city of Jerusalem. And it's just a, a heartbreaking moment there. We've got about five minutes left, Pastor Adam. So I want to make sure we get a chance to talk a little bit about what's happening in verse 35. Jesus has this great loving desire that Jerusalem rejects. What is then the the judgment he speaks in verse 35? Yeah, behold, your house is forsaken. And um, his audience would have, would have, I think, immediately connected this with the judgment of, of God's people in the past. You know, Yahweh had chosen to, to place his name and his presence in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And, and everybody that Jesus is speaking to would have well remembered uh, the exile in Babylon the rebuilding of the temple and and God's return. And now Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And ironically, um, as Yahweh comes to the mount once again in the person of Jesus, um, judgment is proclaimed by Jesus. Um, so we have, you know, the, the ancient prophets that had talked about how God you know, had forsaken his house. Um, Ezekiel talks about the glory of Yahweh leaving the temple and leaving the city. And Jeremiah talks about how um, the house is forsaken by God and, and has become a, a desolation. And so Jesus is is essentially saying that you know Yahweh left His temple and, and left Jerusalem before this. This is going to happen again, and uh, seems to be a pretty clear reference to the temple's destruction in, in seventy A.D. at the hands of the Romans. Um, later on in Luke, Jesus will say, "When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies." then know that its desolation has come near. And uh, I can never remember the difference between synecdoche and metonymy, but it's one of those um, where this this doesn't just seem to be saying, you know, Jesus isn't just saying that the temple 
mm. is going to be forsaken. Of course, this stands for Jerusalem as a whole, um, the nation of Israel as a whole. Um, I, I diligently um, sought you. I gathered, I, or I, I desired with all my heart to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. And so mm. your house will be left forsaken. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that, that day is coming. And so it's still at this time, though, the message of repent now rings out. And I think that's part of the good news of this text. As we got about three minutes here, Pastor Adams. Looking at this section of Luke 13, what should we learn? How do we see good news, gospel in Jesus Christ from this part of Luke 13? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting how the how the text ends with Jesus saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which makes us think of Palm Sunday and, you know, quoting uh, Psalm 118 there. Um, but that is, that is both, again, like earlier in our text, um, really good news and really bad news, um, because that will be the day when, uh, when all people will bow down and, and confess the Lordship of Jesus. Um, and so, you know, the end of our text kind of takes us back to the beginning and it, it reminds us that there is no time to waste. Uh, the day of salvation um, is right now. And Jesus is coming soon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Strive to enter the narrow door. Uh, don't be taken away or, or carried off by lofty theological speculation. Uh, look at your heart and look to Jesus who brings your salvation. Um, this text points us to Jerusalem, and in doing so, it points us to our Savior who went to Jerusalem to, to give his life for us, uh, to rescue us from our sin. He healed and, and he cast out demons and and then he gave his life for all of us, um, even the city of Jerusalem and the, the people of Israel who had rejected him. And uh, one day soon, Jesus will return as the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, because he laid down his life when Herod had no power to take it, when Pilate had no power to take it. But but he gave it and lifted it up again. And so so we look ahead to the day when we will see the, the crucified and risen one again. Pastor Caleb Adams is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon, helping us today with Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. Pastor Adams, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 13 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.